0: Hi, you're listening to Yellow Glitter, a podcast on mindfulness through the eyes and soul of a gay Asian. I'm your host, Stephen Wakabayashi, and you're listening to a very special episode. On this episode, we have an amazing guest. She has been a five-time Grammy and Emmy-nominated comedian and one of Rolling Stone magazine's 50 best stand-up comics of all times. CNN called her Comedians Shaping the American Comedy Landscape. And most recently, stunned America, seeing her way through the wildly popular breakout hit show, The Masked Singer. She is currently on tour with her international Fresh Off the Bloat tour and has a brand new podcast where each week she interviews people you know and people she thinks you should know if you don't know already. Her podcast has 36 episodes in the first season and it includes guests such as Jonathan Van Ness, Kat Von D, Michael Yoke, Kathy Griffin, Quentin Tarantino, Diablo Cody, and along with her brand new dog, Lucia. I'm so, 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 so excited to announce Margaret Cho. Hi, Margaret. Hi. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you on this show to chat together. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. <laughs> Your agent had reached out to me after I had mentioned you on my Queer Tea article as a queer Asian breaking stereotypes and being such a champion of both queer and Asian perspectives. And I definitely want to just say thank you so much for representing. I really appreciate it.
1: (laughs) Thank you. That's Mm -hmm. wonderful.
0: Thank you. And first off, you know, You do so much. You're a comedian, singer, songwriter, actress, fashion designer, author. You've done it all. And I had a chance to take a look at where you started. And you mentioned a few times about how you got started in this comedy journey. And I know that you had mentioned you dropped out of college. And I'm so really curious, what inspired you to do that?
2: Well, I, uh, dropped out of high school, actually. I mean, I don't think that there was anything that I (laughs) wanted to do other than comedy. There was never, um, a sense of really ever wanting anything else out of life. There was Mm. nothing for me in school. There was nothing for me, um, that I wanted to learn. I just wanted to be a comedian and I knew that that, uh, was my journey and fortunately i was um i think just free enough and foolish enough to really just do what i wanted with my life which i think is pretty great and so i i set off pretty early
0: yeah what was kind of the moment when it just clicked and you're like oh my god comedy that's it um
2: well i i just knew that this was like it and you know, I was in San Francisco. In San Francisco, at the time, in the '70s and the '80s, going to go see comedy was actually a very big popular activity. And so there was actually a very um, kind of a, a track for me to follow. Like I knew that uh, there were comedy clubs. I knew that I could uh, go to them. I could uh, sign up. I could go see comedians. I could attach myself myself to comedians who were established and worked. For them so there was a, a kind of a, a layout of a kind of a business or sort of model I could follow which was yeah. lucky
0: you know one of the things I really related to you was this changing of Asian stereotypes of what were meant to do kind of for especially for je- second-generation Asians I actually had gone to college trying to be a doctor (laughs) i Mm -hmm. studied and i ended up completely shifting my career but this was after college and i'm just wondering Mm -hmm. if you had any struggles kind of deciding to pivot dropping out of school and going through comedy especially from the lens of a asian background
2: well i started so young that it was Ah. really um i didn't have to really shift anything um You know, and of course, it was upsetting for my family, but I had always been kind of a rebellious kid anyway, so they didn't expect a lot from me. Like, I um, kind of rejected everything fairly early on, and so to the point of, like, they just didn't – they knew I wasn't going to do what they wanted. You know, like, I (laughs) – Yeah. wasn't going to be going to school. I wasn't going to be going to church. I wasn't going to be going to these colleges that they wanted me to go to. I wasn't going to have, um, a kind of a life that their friends kids had, which they were, their friends kids were all going to like, um, Ivy league schools and they were, um, you know, doing very, very like, uh, you know good stuff for their family and I just wasn't i don't i wasn't interested and I was punk rock I was mm, uh yeah. wild, and that was also partially my parents' fault because they um had a bookstore in a gay neighborhood they employed uh all of these queers who were like getting tattoos in the seventies <laughs> and eighties like full body tattoos they wow. were getting piercings like in the seventies and eighties like this is early early on and so they were uh, they were excited about Harry Milk, they were excited about gay politics, they were excited about gay pride, they were riding with the dikes on bikes. It was like, my family were in this sort of like, queer society already, and so they uh, introduced me to these possibilities that um, were not available to me as a Korean kid, but were as a queer kid.
0: Wow, yeah, how did they end up with a, a bookstore in the queer neighborhood of san francisco i'm so curious
2: well they um my father was always yeah. very uh literary he loves reading he loves books he loves writing um he loved san francisco because he wanted to have a bookstore like city lights which was where like the beats wrote in the 60s in san francisco north beach and so he wanted to have a bookstore like that that bookstore that was a community center And the one that was available was uh, Paperback Traffic, which was on Ah, Polk Street in the 70s. And uh, so he bought it. And buying into this bookstore, he bought into um, the queer community there. And uh, this was before AIDS. This was like in the height of gay chic. So this is like 70s, (laughs) like crazy fun San Francisco where... It was really amazing and, and really exciting to be young and to be around that. And so that's that's how they ended up there. I mean, I don't know how, like, open my family was towards homosexuality exactly, but buying it as business was just the, what sort of clinched them into this, like, lifestyle. And then they were all friends with gay people, um, and they were all, uh, I think, just fitting in and, and that's really the example of adulthood that I got is to be queer, to be literary, to be to have good taste, to be pierced and to be tattooed and to uh, be <laughs> political.
0: Yeah. Wow. And during that time, there was so much happening in San Francisco too. It was kind of the epicenter of the queer movement, right? right?
2: It was so alive and then it was so dead because AIDS came along. This is sort of right before AIDS. And then so you saw how how exciting it was and how great it was. And then suddenly the disease and suddenly this plague and suddenly everybody was gone. And it was really shocking and really fast and really a mystery. Um, but it was also um, the truth of what happened. And then the community um, coming back after that was really it took a long time. Yeah, um, yeah. And to witness that was really incredible too.
0: Wow. 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 How was that like just seeing that shift, you know, it, back then, you know, when AIDS was starting to come up, people with AIDS were not even admitted to hospitals, you know? Right. And I it was shocking.
1: Thought, it was yeah. very shocking. How was that?
0: How was navigating? It that? was
2: really just, just, just devastating because yeah. we didn't understand, uh, anything about the disease. And while it was happening, it was just claiming the lives of so many young people. And, and really, um, the whole neighborhood was completely decimated in like a matter of a a couple of years, very short time. And, and so it was very fast, very shocking. And it was almost like not real because it was so strange. Um, but it it happened very very quickly and um the uh incredible uh homophobia and 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 um just callousness of the government and the the, the just the, the system not acknowledging that it was happening either it was just a very a very terrible very strange time even to think about it now it's yeah. it's really surreal
0: it is and you see some of that stuff still echoing uh, the sentiments right. within a conservative parts of the government. and I just want to kind of also understand uh, you know how was it like navigating being queer, but also being Asian and even just uh, coming out to your parents?
2: Well, they actually yeah. were fine with my gayness. They were fine like with me being straight they have a problem with bisexuality which they still do they still don't think it's real and i think it's my parents have a very 70s view of homosexuality um which is like if you're gay you're gay and that's it that there's no degrees of gayness that you're just gay and if you're not gay then you're straight yeah and anything that is that not that is really not real to them so they still don't fully understand. And I think it's kind of, actually, they're not alone in that. I mean, I have relationships a lot like with older gay people who also believe that too, who are just like, well, bisexuality is not real. It's an excuse that we give when we're not ready to fully come out and it, you'll be ready to come out eventually. Wow. You know, weird place yeah. to be. So my family, were always fine with queerness. They've always been fine with me being gay and they really have a problem with my bisexuality. They think that's not real.
0: Wow.
2: That's a phase. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Wow. You know, I think there's so many stigmas and stereotypes too associated with being bisexual, right? That a lot of people think, you know, it's, you have, like you mentioned, it's some people say, well, you haven't decided yet. Some people think you just want, everything and
2: or it's like you're immature or you're not fully developed or you're not at the destination that you'll arrive at eventually <laughs> you know it's almost like yeah you're just not there yet and it's fine that's fine but it's like it's also not true to who i am but it's something that you learn to accept that the, this kind of weirdness around bisexuality i mean we experience it even within ourselves
1: Uh, You know, this thing of like, am
2: I fully like not realized as a person yet because I'm here and it's, you know,
1: it's weird. Yeah. Did
0: you, did you ever think that maybe this was because a lot of people say, right, it's a phase. And did you ever think to yourself, is this a phase?
2: Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Also, like if I, if I get into a relationship with a, with a, a heterosexual relationship with a man, then I'm like, oh my God, I must just be straight. (laughs) And or if I get in a relationship with a woman, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm just I'm just gay. (laughs) And then it's like you can't you kind of can't like it's weird. You can't your your fears are realized about who you might not be. And it's just a funny thing because it's like we just don't have a society that really conveniently explains like bisexuality to itself so we're going to we we're supposed to define it but we don't even
0: know. You almost try to put yourself in these buckets, right? Some bucket right. that has existed so that you can start to identify with not just yourself but the community, right? You almost want to figure out what communities you're associated with and right. it is so challenging. And I'm I'm curious what if you can explain to someone kind of from your perspective how you define bisexuality? How would you define it?
2: Well, I just define it as the, um, you know, the truth of the matter is that I am attracted to female-bodied, male-bodied people. It has it has very little to do actually with gender now because, and gender to me has always been an infinite expression. There's so uh, many different
1: ways to yeah.
2: express who we are, gender-wise, that it goes beyond uh, definition. It, it's it's infinite. So. It's really, to me, it's it's a very human way to be, you know, I, I, I fall in love. And, and then I, I definitely um, am kind of and never in a way that I can't really predict who that's going to be or what that's going to look like. And I don't know. I, I, it's like really like the definition of not having a type. You really I really don't.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I have a bunch of listeners, too, who identify as being bisexual and or mm-hmm. they're trying to figure out their sexuality too and i'm just curious right. if there's any advice that you might have on just how would you even start to think about these identities
2: i think it's really just about enjoying it like when you really feel like what you're what you're drawn to is is good and and it's good to explore and also different kinds of ways of being intimate whether that's through a bdsm which I think has really been uh, helpful
1: uh, and um yeah,
2: yeah, different yeah. ways of defining even in leather and how we act towards people or even like top and bottoming like it's kind of like opening yourself up to all of the aspects of being in sex and I think that's that's helpful too mm. um because it's it sort of almost, it, it, the the larger you're playing field, the more you narrow down desire. And it, it, it does really um, improve. So I think it's like not to be afraid of trying.
0: <laughs> yeah, almost uh, going to the ice cream store and asking for these samples. Yeah, asking yeah.
2: for all of the flavors. <laughs> because you can taste yep. everything yeah. and then make a decision from there. And then it, it becomes a little bit easier because then you're like i i have narrowed it down to some things and then also being glad that we're not limited to um these ideas of of uh gender and um what society views of who should be yep. together
0: yes yes and i think especially for americans uh we have a beautiful opportunity to explore compared to unfortunately what some people face in other countries right Right. even yeah. just even just plain homosexuality being a lesbian being gay
1: right. you can right. get
0: murdered and... i know
1: it's it's <laughs> horrifying
2: and so we're it so is. lucky that we have the freedom and also the way that the the world is in and like dating online like with like apps there's uh, so many apps that you really yeah, are yeah, am- yeah. it's amazing the variety of people that you can meet and kind of Look to be sexual towards or or even intimate or anything, so it's amazing,
0: yeah, okay. You brought up a really interesting point. So I ask my guests frequently about this topic about these dating apps, mm-hmm. and they have many thoughts about it, and I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on these dating apps right now?
2: i uh, well, yeah. I love it. I mean, yeah, yeah. I have not been single in the age of apps, so this is my first year of actually getting into it and i love it like i really excite it's exciting because i get to meet all sorts of different people uh who i would not necessarily meet and with different age ranges a racially different um class-wise different different interests and backgrounds and and so i i find it really amazing so i i, I like it a lot
0: mm, yeah And there is this other viewpoint too where some people think that there are communities, a lot of queer people who are really stuck on these apps too, right? They don't go out anymore, they don't go to bars. And I've also seen a trend Mm. where a lot of the bars that we used to go and meet people are becoming fairly empty now. And I'm curious, my thought was, hey, maybe the apps had influenced this too.
2: Maybe. I mean, I think that that's unfortunate because bars have traditionally been like kind of our meeting places. And it you know, outside of sex or or relationships, they're mostly places for us to be political together, to just hang out, to watch TV even, um, to just meet and have fun with friends. And so, you know, the gay bar, in my mind, it's still a very large place in my social structure,
1: yeah it's part yeah. of my
2: life, anyway, <laughs>
1: yeah,
2: so I wouldn't ever yeah. get away from that um and and like if I'm hooking up with somebody it it's easy to meet at first, but it's also most likely that I would meet them in a different context somewhere uh,
0: else,, yes, somewhere safe, right. Yeah.
2: Always. Always, oh yeah. That you got to make sure they're not that'll they kill you, and then like you have to make sure like it's the right person. I mean, you know, because a lot of people catfish, so you don't know. Oh yes, who they who do. And what's going on? Oh my god! So you, don't, you know, you got to be yeah. safe.
0: Yeah. Oh my god! I've been catfished so many times.
2: <laughs> I know it's so weird. I don't know why anybody would do that because it's like, what the hell? I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's
0: just very strange. And it's uh, you're you're not turned on, right? When the catfish happens and they show up, you're like i i'm leaving now
2: (laughs) yeah like why would you do that i don't know i don't know
0: and they had have you seen the netflix show the circle it's uh it's a social game where they have people either play themselves or a different persona and the entire the entire tv show is around talking to each other on this chat application Mm -hmm and they vote each I other don't know. I off seen it. yeah yeah and so there are a couple people who go on this show specifically to catfish uh-huh. and so they talk mm. about how they choose images what kind of person they want to represent and what they want to do as a catfish and it was interesting because somebody had mentioned the reason they catfish was to break stereotypes break norms and i was thinking huh that's really interesting that someone will use catfishing as a tool of activism.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard of that. But, I mean, you know, whatever. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's weird.
0: Yeah, I don't yeah. like
2: being catfished. I, I, don't I, I, I
1: don't think I would yeah. enjoy it. No, yeah. no. <laughs> no. That's so
0: weird. Yeah, it's very. And, you know, I kind of want to turn back a little bit. Uh, turn back time. And I read a little bit about you and how you came to be in this world and I learned Mm -hmm. that you grew up in both Korea and in America and I just want to know what happened and how was that like
2: well my father was um deported for overstaying his student visa in like 1973 so I ended up going back to Korea with him often and uh sort of being shuttled back between relatives and and, you know, then finally coming back to America. So well, I spent a lot of time in Korea as a really little kid. Yeah, um, yeah. But, um, you know, finally they kind of figured it out, uh, the citizenship thing and the money thing. Um, but it was a lot of, uh, it was just sort of a lot of like getting used to new environments as a kid and, and then uh, having lots of different caretakers. Um, mm, yeah. And then like, you know in korea like or any Mm -hmm. asian household the furniture all of the the corners of the tables have like metal Uh, so it's really dangerous so i was like got a lot of like weird Uh, injuries all over my body from those metal corners of (laughs) tables. always on your head or your leg it was like
0: split your body open
2: it's really the most dangerous furniture of all of the ethnicities Uh, yes i think we we have the most dangerous scary scary (laughs) furniture
0: and then you have <laughs> and you have the white parents now who pad everything, right? They had all these padding on the furniture for the kids. Like, oh yeah. Oh I know, I know. <laughs> we were so
2: at risk when we were growing up from like yeah. the crazy furniture.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you know, I kept hitting my head and we had, uh, when I was growing up, so I am Taiwanese and Japanese and my mom, mm-hmm. she's Taiwanese and when I grew up, every time I'd bump my head on the bar, we had a bar in the kitchen with a part on the very mm-hmm. top that jetted out and it was wood. Oh. I, yeah, <laughs> I know. And I kept running in the house and you know you make these sharp turns as a kid, right? You're like, I'm gonna go over there right. but let me just go yeah. zoom. And then I would hit my head and my mom's like, you just have to do better.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's really scary. It's like we just constantly <laughs> injured ourselves. At, yeah. And then, like, toys and stuff growing up in the 70s was pretty yeah, dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Like, a everything like big wheels that you would ride in the street and
0: yeah yeah, yeah. scary
2: shit that yeah. would like fly off of like the like Star Wars X-Wing fighters. They would like shoot out like these pellets
0: yeah, yeah, that yeah. were always
2: on somebody's <laughs> nose or in somebody's eyes. Oh, yeah, it, was, yeah. it was always really
0: scary. <laughs> yeah. And then you just swallow and you're like, okay, moving on. <laughs>
2: yeah. Very scary yeah.
0: shit. Yeah. And, and I'm so curious, you know, so you spent time in Korea and do you does your family identify a lot more as Americans or as Koreans? And
2: they're Koreans. They'll okay. never really be Americans. You know, they never. Re- I mean, they're even though they spent more time here than they ever did in Korea, they uh, their mindset is like we're going back to the mothership at ah, some point. You know, it's like yeah, yeah, always yeah. like an expedition. It's never like <laughs> we've emigrated to become yeah. Americans. We're here to get what we need and we're going back. So there's never, ever a sense of needing to learn everything, needing to vote, needing to actually put down roots or anything. It, it was always a, 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 an expedition, never yeah. uh, a destination.
0: Yeah, it's an extended vacation, right?
2: <laughs> right. Yeah. So, but, you know, what they did want American kids, they wanted us to stay here um, and be here, but uh, they didn't want to stay themselves
0: that's that's really fascinating, do you have an idea of uh why
2: I don't know, but i i i get that in my mind, you know sometimes I think, oh well, uh eventually I'll retire when I retire, I'll move to Seoul,
1: yeah, or yeah. i'll
2: move to um i think in my mind I'll move to fukuoka yeah. like i'll go like <laughs> I'll probably live in yeah. like either Fukuoka or like maybe you know um outside of tokyo like not tokyo but like (laughs) outside something like that Um, i love japan yeah live i love japan Uh,
0: oh my gosh you know but then
2: i think like maybe that would be hard but then when i go i go to japan like if i go i travel for like a month and Mm
1: -hmm.
0: i
2: get really burnt out like i'm like i want to go home like i want to go to america
0: (laughs) it's a lot and i have friends who've never been to tokyo and i'm like you've been in new york tokyo is another it's another ball game
2: <laughs> yeah i mean i love japan and i love korea but i do get burnt out in a way there that i don't in america so i don't know if i would feel as settled there if i lived there if i if i really followed my retirement idea <laughs>
0: Yeah. I'm curious. When you So you grew up in this household, in the Korean household. Did you speak English or Korean primarily when you were at home? We
2: spoke English and then they spoke in Korean to us. And we couldn't answer in Korean because they wanted us to be American yes. and not have an accent. Yeah. But they also didn't want to learn English. Uh, so they, yeah. they would speak uh, Korean to us and we would have to answer in English and <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah. of that I speak Korean but in a very jolty yes. like hesitant yep. way my family also speaks Japanese too oh really um,
1: yeah
2: yeah they're very like um it had to do with my grandfather he worked for the Japanese during the war uh-huh. so they um yeah. were mo- more comfortable at that point speaking Japanese and uh, they enjoyed reading Japanese, like all of the books that they had were in Japanese. And so I think that there was wow. more of a comfort with Japanese.
0: Wow, wow, but, wow, yeah. But, um,
2: you know, they're actually Korean.
0: That is so fascinating. And this whole, you yeah, know, I, I definitely relate with it too because I was born and raised in LA and mm-hmm. I was in an Asian community while my father was alive. So he was very adamant about being Japanese, but he wanted me to be American, too. And so he wanted me to practice English, Uh, he wanted Mm -hmm. to move us towards a very white-centric neighborhood, rather than to live within an Asian community. And there was this, Yeah. yeah, and there was this, almost this shedding of an Asian identity, but when you actually shed it, and you kind of move away from it, it actually made my, so my father passed away, but it made my mother really sad. And I asked my mother, yeah, and, I'm like, yeah. and I'm like, well, you wanted me to Americanize so much, but when I had done that you were kind of sad about it.
2: Right. It's like you lost, something lost in the translation. It's almost as if they want you to like inherently want to remain Asian. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, even, yeah.
2: Which is not, that's, but that, that's not what they're teaching us to do. Yes. They're teaching us to be fully Americanized and yet they have this thing of like, would they wish that we would wish for home or be homesick for Asia, but we never lived there, so there was no way that I could have that sort of same thing, you know, that same kind of homesickness or or whatever. But so you can you you know you can't have it both ways. You can't be Americanized and still long. For Asia. It's like you got to have one or the other. It's really funny.
0: And especially, I think, when you're born in America, it's totally different, right? Because this is your home that you identify with. This is your birth certificate. This is where you're a citizen of, right? Naturalized. Yeah, yeah. And I'm curious if you... So I'm curious about kind of how you grew up with this. You moved back to America and... At the time too across all of America it was pretty not diverse, right? And right. I'm curious if you had any struggles navigating that.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, and also struggles with my own um, families, their own racism, their own fear about like the other, their own ideas of like what is the right way to be American, like yes. whether it's okay, we're going to go Christian school or we're going to go to public school and all that. So like I kind of worked all that out with my parents because they were like, you know, didn't understand and, you know, they had this period in like the 80s where they really wanted to be white. And so I was going to like a Christian school. I was going to skiing, which I think is like the whitest thing that you can do. (laughs) It
0: it (laughs) Um, is. Skiing and snowboarding. Yes.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Like super white. And it was just such a it was so preppy like everybody wanted to be preppy <laughs> and so it was a weird yeah, yeah, thing yeah. of like because my parents were suddenly middle class like suddenly went from like lower class to middle class and then it was that was a big shit
0: i'm curious what what is your relationship with the korean culture now are you prideful of it um, or how do you identify i with am it? Uh, yeah. well now
2: Mostly it's like food related like uh, it's like I need yep. to go eat Korean food, I need to go uh, to Koreatown, like I need to go, yes, there's like a little Korea town kind of where I live too um so that like I need to go there, like I need to go to Korea and eat I need to go like so to me, it's really like all based around food and movies and um, going to like c g v like the movie theater in Koreatown, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah, like going to the spas like it's like uh, more like the the Koreanness is sort of the when I reach for comfort that's what I go for is like the food, the movies um k pop all that kind of stuff to me is like in a comfort zone,
0: yes. I had gone through this boomerang. So I was trying to Americanize. My family wanted me to Americanize. And as part of it, I built all of these internalized racism within myself. And Mm -hmm. uh, for the longest time, I ended up not wanting to have anything to do with the Asian culture. Because I was really anti that as a kid. And as I was growing up, I had seen, you know, some of my ways in terms of how I navigated even dating. For example, I had a really tough time dating Asian people. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't until in the past few years, actually, I had gone back to Asia. I spent considerable time in Japan to really get Mm -hmm. to know my culture and to understand it a lot better that I finally had this love that really grew out of identifying with this as my self and my identity. And I'm curious... If you've ever had that boomerang within yourself, kind of coming home, oh yeah, coming, yeah,
2: yeah. Like I think when I was much younger, and then now it's definitely different. Like now I definitely, I always had issues like dating Asian women. So I'm dating an Asian woman now who's much younger than me, and it's really shocking because it's like,
1: yeah, what's very shocking,
2: yeah. strange, like feeling of like, oh, this is very a subversion of the Uh, uh, relationship that I usually have with younger Asian women, which is very maternal. But now it's like the sexual relationship, which is really wild and crazy. And then now it's like (laughs) very like, to me, it's really perverse, but it's also really sexy because it's like, oh, this is Uh, like us really rebelling against the way we were raised. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I I, I think that that I, Uh, I take a real delight in that now because it's like all of my... Biases and internalized racism is now working towards, like, a better sexual future for myself. (laughs) So it's nice.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I read a statistic somewhere that um, about interracial relationships. And Asian women are actually the highest, uh, most likely to go into an interracial relationship.
2: Right. And so being in a relationship with another Asian American woman... It's really also very triggering for other people.
0: Yeah. To, yeah
1: especially yeah, yeah. white
2: men get real mad. Not, and you can't, it's weird because it's like they have this like reflexive kind of thing of like, wait a second, you're supposed to be with one of us, but it's like we're together. And that sort of makes them really like invisible and that's, they can't deal. Wow.
0: <laughs> yeah. What? I mean, have they said anything? Have they done anything? Well, you can feel
2: it. Like, you can feel, like, this kind of, like...
0: Unease. You know, like... uh,
2: Mm, Unease of, like, jealousy. And it's, like, also voyeurism.
1: Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know,
2: it's also, like, this sexuality looks not for them at all. And it's, like, very strange to... You know, she's very lovely. And it's, like, this thing of, like... You can feel the tension around it. Where I don't feel that sort of thing in any other context. Yeah, yeah. Anywhere, partnered with anybody else. This is the first time I've actually said that because she's much younger than me, she's very attractive and uh, appears to be heterosexual. And appear, we both appear very femme, very hetero, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, it's a threat. It's a viable kind of threat.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting, and I made this shift as well. And I started dating Asian men, and there's so much that started stirring up uncomfortability. Um, just revisiting right. this internalized racism, kind of head to head, right?
2: It's a trip. It's like it's like it's like sticky rice, you know. It's that like, they they always call it sticky rice, but it's like when you actually do partake in it, it, there's so much to get into because we do stick together in so many ways that it, it becomes a really a beautiful exploration yeah.
0: yeah and i always recommend my asian friends i say just try it you never know what it's going to be like and explore just like you said right go into ice cream shop explore. right and, but it's yeah. you,
2: you explore but it's also like this is like very potent because this is like um it's really triggering to like white guys because it's like the white guys are always like the ones that lay low like the Asians, <laughs> yes,
0: And so when you're yes. like not with a white guy, it yeah. really
2: is freaks them out.
0: <laughs> it's like uh, it's, they're, they're thinking, it's well, funny. why don't you want me, right? They question themselves. Yeah,
2: they're like, what's going on? And then what if you all did this? What's going to happen? Like, it's really yeah. a funny thing. Like, yeah, it's so weird.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I want to shift a little bit to. You had mentioned you had gone to school, a Christian school, and you mentioned in some of the talks you've given, some of the stuff you've written about your spirituality. And I kind of wanted to understand a little bit better where did that come from?
2: Well, it's like, you know, my family is like also very Christian. Part of that has to do with like um, my grandfather being. a minister at the Tamnikyohe, uh-huh. which is like the big church in San Francisco that was like where, you know, a lot of the immigrants sort of like um kind of got together and there's a lot of banking systems that kind of created from there. So there was a there was a lot of like shift towards spirituality in my family. And my mother's always Buddhist too, so she has a long history of like Buddhism in her family.
1: So um, the combination of that
2: yeah. is very um it's very like kind of part of my heritage, but also like, I think that I, I do like the idea of spirituality. I don't like religion. I don't like church, but I do like the idea of having a spiritual practice, whether that's meditation or some kind of prayer or pilgrimages or holy spaces or whatever that is. Um, I like religious art. I like, um, Buddhist art. I like um, the idea of it all, but I don't like to, you know, I don't like churches and I don't like the idea of of going.
0: There's so much, much these practices have in common with each other, right? It's uh, a, you know, some people call it meditating. Some people call it praying, doing prostrations. Mm -hmm. There's so many different ways to call it. And I think a lot of people get so tripped up on how to define it. Right. And I think there's this one true way that this practice of being just mindful has to be and this trying to force fit something to the spirituality mindfulness there is no form there is no shape and in trying to fit it we get into all of these art fights these arguments and battles and it sucks it sucks for who all the people that want to explore these things
2: Right. I mean, there's just so much there to explore and it doesn't have to feel like this crazy, like, like there's a real true answer. It's like it can just be explored. And I mean, I like it all. I think it's all really, really interesting.
0: I'm just curious. So you identify yourself as a Christian and...
2: I guess, but it's, that doesn't even really, that doesn't even really fit. I I would just Spiritual. say a speaker.
0: Yeah, yeah, A seeker. Yeah, a spiritual
2: yeah. seeker, maybe. I don't know. Christianity is so disappointing, so many ways. So I would <laughs> I, say everything.
0: Yeah, okay. You know what I love? Yeah, I oh, love when yeah. the
2: way the Filipinos are Christian when they get all yeah. like they get all they crucify themselves and stuff. You know, like how they do in the yeah, Philippines. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And during <laughs>
2: Easter, like it's so great. It's just like Folsom Street, Street Fair or something. Like it's like they get real like public. <laughs> And real, like,
0: yeah, really into it. (laughs) Very,
2: very crazy. They get into it, and I'm like, I like that, but I don't, I wouldn't say that that would necessarily be Christian.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But it's there, it's how they define it, right? It's uh, the way that they want to be, it's Catholicism,
2: but it's so like visceral and bloody and crazy. Like, I've gone to Mexico a lot during um, Semana Santa, which is like Holy Week before Easter, and they do all of the crazy, like, self-flagellation and all this bloodletting. Yeah, thats wow. so crazy, but it's cool. And it's so, it's just like going to Folsom Street Fair. It's like, there's nothing different, really.
0: <laughs> nothing different from Folsom. It's are all yeah. doing the same stuff. It's great. Yeah. I love, I, I always seek people who really challenge the norms, you know, just like push yeah. it out there and give it your I own spin it. and give it your own flavor. Yeah, it's beautiful. We're all so different. And I think it's largely due to our intersections of our identities too, right? Right. How does the sexuality even fit within the context of spirituality, gender identity? And Mm -hmm. I had a question for you. So some people find spirituality extremely contradictory with being queer, being bisexual, gay, lesbian, uh, primarily Mm -hmm. because there's so much, so many religious organizations that are really hurtful for queer people. Yeah. And yeah. I'm just really curious, how has it been for you to navigate this spiritual life while being bisexual?
2: Oh, well I don't buy any of those kinds of ideologies that somehow discount homosexuality or think somehow that it negate your spiritual life. You know, that. that's really... To me, It you don't have a right to say that about other people who have different kinds of sexuality. So I don't believe in that kind of stuff. I do think that, you know, we should be able to seek God yeah. and also be true to who we are yes. and who we want to love. There yeah. th- There shouldn't be a divide there.
0: Yeah. And a big question I get from a lot of my listeners is, how do I even get started? How do I even get into this practice they see a lot of us so i'm fairly spiritual i meditate meditate every day i attribute a lot of my happiness to it a lot of my peace serenity yeah it's great it is and i'm just curious do you have any advice for somebody who wants to get started in this and what has worked for you
1: well
2: for me it's like a constant like i'm constantly in a communication with Uh, whatever is divine, that for me, it's like, more about constant prayer and constant communication. It's kind of like, I'm always on the phone with God, but then I'll do my interruptions to do my life. So like, life is just like, for me, like kind of one long meditation or one long prayer. And it's interspersed with social activities and sex. And even sex can be prayer too, you know, in its own way, or whatever. But it's like, you know i am um just kind of like down with hanging out with whatever is divine all the time um but you get there d- through, through i think just trying to decide of like where do i think god is or what do i want god to be and that's more of like a choice like a
0: cho- some might call it god some call it mother earth
2: right right or spirit or the universe or light or whatever it is but it, it it's not me that's that's the main
0: mm. Yeah. Kind of,
2: it's like I'm not in charge. I, something else is, and I choose to call God, but it can be many names.
0: And when we act from our place of truth, this voice speaks through us. And right. I find when we do things that speaks and aligns with our truth, and this voice speaks to yeah. us, it resonates, and it's telling us you are on the right path.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a nice thing, and it's it's good reassurance, and it's yeah. just about peacefulness, and yeah, and I love that.
0: You do comedy, you stand up comedy, but not just that. I see you integrate it so beautifully with activism work. You talk about bullying Mm -hmm. and sexual abuse. And one, I just applaud you so much for doing this because I also see, yeah, and I also see the people who are really uncomfortable by it too. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious. What inspires you to continue integrating this, even though there are people who just don't want to hear it sometimes as a part of comedy?
2: Well, it's hard because it's like, but it's just comfortable for me. And it's kind of like, oh, well, I'll one day perfect a way to relate this that will be comfortable. And, you know, it's more like trial and error. Let me get there and then like try to figure out what the right way but to me it's worthwhile you know these are the kinds of things that i would like to hear about like as a comedian like i would like to hear a comedian be skilled at these very painful things talking about you know so that that's what i would like as a um as an audience member so i would sort of try to like satisfy myself as if i was part of the audience
0: creating the show that you want to watch Right.
2: <laughs> yeah. And it, it it's, a, it's, a, it's like eventually it'll be perfected, but it's like a matter of time to, before it gets there. But I think it'll it'll work itself out
0: for even what I say is for even the people who don't even talk about it. I think that's OK, too.
2: Yeah. There's lots of ways to talk about anything. But, you know, it's comedy is an interesting art form. And so it's it's taken a lifetime to for me to sort of figure it out and still figuring it out.
0: Yeah, and you've been in the game for so long now and doing yeah, comedy, yeah. changing your work. Uh, what
2: mm-hmm. what, have you,
0: what have you learned about that? What have you learned along the way?
2: Well, I learned that it, it, it's um, definitely, um, it's something that people need to realize, like you have to be the heroic part of, of the story. Like that's what they want from a comedian is for the comedian to really win. And if you don't with those situations where you don't win, it's very hard for them to accept that. So it's always sort of part of that hero's journey or like how can you be heroic in something and yet appear not to win? And that's sort of like the the thing that we all go through. So it's it's really just getting there, trying to figure it out.
0: And so I know you are right now, you're on tour, um, mm-hmm. fresh off of the blow. And I just want to... Get my listeners to hear from your perspective. What is it about? And uh what else are you working on?
2: Um, well, it's about a lot of things. It's kind of a lot about everything, and it's always about everything. And uh it's a a lot about like also Asian Americans coming into this place of being part of movies and TV in a way that we haven't before. And um and that's really exciting. Um, so there's a lot of different things. Um, about uh, exploration, about singleness, about um, being partnered with all sorts of different people, being single with all sorts of different people, yeah, yeah. <laughs> having
1: fun.
2: Um, yeah. yeah, there's a lot, there's yeah. a
0: lot. Yeah. One question I have for you is, uh, because your tour is all around the world, essentially, and you're traveling so often, how do you stay mindful and present while you travel everywhere? Um,
2: I mean it, it's so, it's it kind of in my nature or I try to be um I try to make it my nature but I also travel with my dog which helps she's oh. um a little chihuahua lucia and so she's so cute very present <laughs> yeah. and very in the moment all the time so that helps push me into the moment as well.
0: Yeah some some people say you know babies and animals they are enlightened beings yes. because they can be so present. Yes.
2: And they are right there. And that's really, uh, it's very, you learn a lot. It's it's really incredible.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. And so to kind of wrap up, I wanted to ask you three really quick rapid fire questions. Okay. You ready? Yes. (laughs) Yes. The first question is, what do we need more of in life?
2: Laughter. Laughter.
0: (laughs) Yes. And what do we need less of in life?
2: Uh, anger.
0: Mm, that's a good one. And mm-hmm. lastly, what is inspiring you lately?
2: Um, I think just light and light in the way it changes over the year. Like I can definitely tell it's February from the way that the light is. And I've learned that from like 51 Februaries. And like, I got, I got realize, oh, I see the time now in the way the sun is. And, and I, um, I'm excited about that
0: yeah amazing amazing well yeah. thank you so much margaret it was an absolute That's joy thank to have you, you. <laughs> and you know thank you so much for doing all the work for our community you know you are a big voice for the queer bisexual community and for asian voices as well so really yeah. really really appreciate it
2: wonderful
0: <laughs> well thank you yes people are curious how can uh, people reach out to you and get in touch
2: um I am on the socials at Margaret Cho on Twitter, Margaret underscore Cho on Insta, and uh, yeah, at Margaret Cho anywhere.
0: Yes, yes. And I love your pictures of your dog. So cute. Thank you.
2: She's so
1: cute.
0: (laughs) So definitely check her out on her social media. If you also want to get in touch with me, uh, you can find me on social at Stephen Wakabayashi. Well, with that, thank you so much and hope your day be a little bit more mindful. (laughs) Bye now.
1: Bye-bye.